James Bond and friends. James Bond is on assignment this week, so they put me in charge, Paul Atkinson from MI6 HQ, and I'm joined by Ben Williams, Bill Kodak, Mark O'Connell, and James Page. Could you introduce yourselves, guys? Yeah, hi. Uh, I'm Ben Williams, purveyor of fine James Bond-related articles for MI6 HQ and MI6 Confidential magazine. Hi, I'm Bill Koenig, and I run a blog called The Spy Command. Hi, I'm Mark O'Connell, writer, author of Catching Bullets, Bullet Catcher, and Big Bond fan. I'm James Page, partner in crime, Paul Atkinson, MI6. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining me on a on a hot afternoon, eh, Ben? It's a little warm. Yep. It's nice and sunny. <laughs> yes. Also, New Zealand, New Zealand is New Zealand is doing well too. So this is the weather cast, obviously. But this week we've got a few uh, odds and ends to talk about in terms of what's rolled out uh, in the James Bond universe. With a particular note, I think probably on Kerry Fukunaga's little lovely narrated trailer that he posted on Instagram recently and said, you know, this is why I don't do audiobooks. But first, maybe we can touch on some timely stuff, and Bill can tell us about a little trip he made to Toronto. Yes, there was a um, live musical performance of the Skyfall score. So in other words, you watched the movie and then you had a live orchestra in front of the screen playing. It was really, really good. It uh, happened on the weekend of uh, February 21st and 22nd. I went on the 22nd. On the 22nd, there was a big collection of Bond fans organized by, and I'm probably going to forget somebody, but like James Bond Canada, the James Bond Complex, which is based out of Montreal, and various others. It was, uh, but it was quite a grand time, and it was really interesting in that structurally, you had a chance to you know hear the music live, and there were like subtle changes compared to the soundtrack. But I mean, that's fine. And they also dialed down the sound effects just a bit. And I first noticed that in the pre-titles, because early in the pre-titles, Money Penny loses her. Um, uh, side mirrors and that vehicle she's driving and it, when you saw it in the theater the like this big loud crashing sound you still heard the sound effect but it was you know it wasn't as loud anyway it was uh, it was a really good time uh my wife is not the biggest bond fan and she enjoyed herself immensely what i was doing almost totally throughout the movie i, I was like i'd be like watching the movie and then i would glance down at the orchestra and you get an idea of just how hard the musicians work you know the the lights were dimmed over the orchestra so you didn't get the best look but particularly when uh, there was a string intensive section of the score you could just see how hard they were you know going at it so uh, it, it it just gives you a just a greater appreciation of uh professional mu- musicians did it give you a greater appreciation of the score as well because i've never had a problem with thomas newman's skyfall score but it suddenly became a richer piece because i saw it at the albert hall back in um october and I, I get you're right about the whole appreciating the orchestra and their efforts. I mean, obviously, they don't sit and do a whole film live in one take when they're putting these uh, cues and tracks together. But uh, did it change your perception of the score, seeing it in that way? Yes. I mean, it, you know, anytime you can see a score buy it or separate the score from the film, it gives you a greater appreciation. Mm. Um, even with TV scores where they have far fewer instruments – you know, the, the compositions are more intricate than you realize because, you know, when you see a TV or movie, you know, again, you're having sound effects, you're having, you know, dialogue, and um, it's just uh, almost any score is more intricate than you would suppose mm. going in. But yeah, seeing it done, you know, actually seeing it live, yes. I mean, but I would think that would be the case with almost anything. But mm. yes, it was, it, was, it, was a, it was a great time. Mm. I finally noticed the whole score is about Judy Dench and M. 
Uh, well, I've partly had a weird experience because she was sat behind me when we saw it. So suddenly everything was filtered through a Judy Dench audio lens, including her coughing throughout most of the film. But yeah, I, I found the whole score, particularly seeing it live, it just became a real M heraldic sort of British score. I quite appreciated it a lot more for that, actually, ultimately. Very, there are very subtle differences between the performance, the live performance and the mm. soundtrack, because again, you know, it's a different collection of musicians who are playing the music, mm. and there's bound to be some things. I mean, it's nothing drastic at all, but just I would, I would, my ear would occasionally catch little bits here and there, mm. uh, and that's fine. It's um, you know, the, this, these were a great bunch of uh, professionals, and they they were fantastic. It was just it was just a great time. Yeah, I, I noticed that when um, when I, I I saw Casino Royale with a live orchestra a few years back um, at the Royal Albert Hall. And everything that you, you, you're saying, both both Mark and, and you, Bill, it, it's, it's true of it. It really enhances the, the actual viewing experience as well. But you do see how hard they are working. And there are subtle changes. But, it, but the music becomes a higher note, so to speak, in the overall viewing experience. As you say, Bill, the sound effects are kind of dialed back slightly to allow the kind of the music to kind of take to the front. Um, I think, you know, having seen Casino Royale, I, I can't even count how many times. It has to be one of my favorite favorite viewings of it. And, and also one thing, they, they also had subtitles. I mean, you could still hear the dialogue, but they actually had subtitles on the screen. So there were, there were actually a few times, and it was mostly with uh, Maurice, uh, or I forget her name, uh, the actress who played Severin and Javier Bardem. When I saw the movie, I saw the movie four times in the theater and I've seen it on home video. It's like I, I always caught the gist of the conversations, but there were like a few lines here and there. Oh, that's what she said. Or, oh, that's what he said. Where it's like you you can actually see the whole thing because they both spoke in, you know, accented English. Again, just a, a small thing, but it's like, I appreciated it. Have any of you guys got something you want to see? Because I'd love to do Goldeneye in concert. Oh, <laughs> oh, ouch! Too soon, too soon. Cost <laughs> Eric's well, Eric Serra and his kazoos. Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, where where does the kazoo kazoo section sit? Is that even with the percussion? Yeah, I, you you do think like what other films could get the Bond live treatment? But I imagine I, I'm no sort of composition expert, but I imagine that it's probably a lot easier for them to do a Daniel Craig because those cues and all of it is written and logged within modern technology and modern yes. computers and modern you know, music sheets, whatever the actual terminology is. Um, so the idea of them going back, I mean, I'd love to see them do Moonraker, but actually I bet it's really technically a problem. I mean, it's not just get the score from the, you know, the John Barry library. I'm sure it doesn't quite work like that, as well as obviously rights as well. Yeah, they don't even have the master tapes for that film, yes, I think. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah, you'd basically have to rescore it by ear. Yeah. Yeah, I, I couldn't imagine doing that, but it would be nice to see them, you know, or obviously on a Majesty's Secret Service as well. But I just, I just feel it's not contemporary enough in their structures. Also, that I could be wrong, but possibly those films also didn't have as much music as well. Although I thought that of Skyfall, and I was surprised how you know active the orchestra was. Supposedly, The Spy Who Loved Me has only like about forty-five, forty-six minutes mm. of music, and that even includes the uh, stuff they redid from uh, Lawrence of Arabia and, and so forth. Mm -hmm, mm. Uh, I saw a reference to that in the book, The Music of James Bond. So there are some scores that are 
fairly short. Ben, any uh, any wishes for what you'd like to see next and scored? I I would like to see John Carpenter's The Thing scored, <laughs> just, just just because um, it would be a very quiet experience and just one synthesizer. No, I'm sorry, I'm being being terribly sarcastic. I think I think what everyone has said is is kind of true. The more kind of dynamic scores seem to have come sort of in the later kind of periods, uh, particularly starting with Casino Royale. Um, and I think it would obviously be a lot easier to, to to kind of do a live performance of those. Majesties, yeah, absolutely would love to see that. I'm, I'm with Mark on Moonraker, actually. I think it's such a, it'd be, be a really entertaining film to, to see with a, with a live audience, or with a live uh, orchestra. Shall we segue neatly into another musical topic? Please do. Mark's back on the panel mostly because he's excited about Billie Eilish, but she's breaking some records and not just breaking, uh, not just breaking Bond-related records. She's, you know, got the uh, the biggest single of the year so far in the UK, and she's equal. Obviously, she can she can do no better than Sam Smith because uh, 2015 he hit the top of the UK chart. How are how are you guys digesting a the news and b the song now that it's been out in the world for a little while and you're getting to hear other people's reactions to it? Well, I know Mark is very keen to jump right in because this is his his thing. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll start by saying. When I first heard this song, my reaction wasn't entirely positive. I actually liked the way it's being written and constructed. I just think there were, I felt like the the Bond cues were perhaps a little heavy handed. Considering that I am now a resident of Highland Park, which is uh, Billy's home home suburb in uh, neighborhood, I should say, in LA, uh, I guess I've got to be on board with it. I actually do think the more I listen to it, I listened to it again this morning, the more I listen to it, the more I like it. I think it is a lyrically a very good song. I think it is better constructed technically than perhaps some of the other offerings that we've had. I just feel like perhaps it didn't need to lean so deeply into the Bond stuff. It could have. I think it would have stood stood out, stood on its own. I guess. Yeah. So a lot of that's sort of down to the arrangement as opposed to the composition. If that makes any. Yeah, absolutely. Distinction. I, I just, I just felt that there were a couple of times where they, you got a, a, th- a few horns thrown in, a couple of Bond stabs in there that weren't necessarily. It's like some, stabs in the dark. Yeah, it's like somebody tapping you on the shoulder and just reminding you that this is for Bond, and I don't think it was really necessary. Ben, which ones in particular? Oh, just you know, whenever you get a kind of like a in a little kind of, I don't know, like a horn stab. I mean, I'm, I, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not sitting here with a, with a timer saying when it, when it comes in. I, no, also I, fa- I understand. But like I me, mean, by my count, I, I heard three, but others, but I know like other people on the panel didn't hear one of the ones I heard. So I, but I'm pretty sure I, I'm correct on one of them. So my, my feeling is that it's, it is, it is a, it's a beautifully done song. She's got a really lovely voice. I think she she's a great um, performer and and um, in conjunction with her brother, a really great writer. Um, I just feel like perhaps that it, it feels too heavily uh, heavy handed in its and it's kind of especially that last that last Bond kind of glang at the end um, with the guitar. Mm. Would it be fair to say, Ben, that you'd like to hear the version before Hans Zimmer got involved? I, I think that's a fair, a fair thing to say. I, I, you know, everything else that I know of hers is just it, it, it's it's kind of beautiful and haunting. It doesn't require that extra, you know, that extra kind of glang stuff going on. And um, 
I, I, I think my, my biggest criticism, if I'm going to have the level one, other than the fact that it's got, it does feel like it's, it's sort of part C to Skyfall and writings on the wall. It, it would have been nice to have, I know that's not really her style and, and to sort of maybe you've got to utilize the performer in the best way that you can, but perhaps something that just didn't feel like so, so kind of similar to, to what we've had served up previously. Going out with a bang. Yeah, yeah. I personally, I mean, I've, I've obviously uh, been found in a few places in the last week or two talking about it and boring it up. So I do think it's actually a really strong piece of, you know, piece of work. I do feel it stumbles slightly when it uh, reaches for that Bond sound, when it tries to, you know, uh, hanker alongside or be part of that familiar Bond audio DNA. Um, I do feel it, it slightly in its defense, and I don't know if this is fair, but it's how I've been defending it because I realized recently that uh, she's an O'Connell as well, uh, Phineas and Billy, so I'm going to be deeply devoted to the, the family name there because it's the uh, nearest uh, O'Connell's got to uh, a Bond film for a few years. Not, not loads of years, but a few and uh, no, the thing is that Phineas and particularly Billy are both, they grew up with Daniel Craig. That's, yes, they're aware because they're, they're musically aware of lots of performers and singers and the heritage of the music scene that they're part of. But they've only really, as I say, grown up with this, this Daniel Craig era of five films. And I think there's maybe some deliberate plan or observation on their part to, to bring in those previous sounds. Yes, I mean, I saw some comment on Twitter where it, it feels like Sam Smith and Adele you know, got together, had a glass of wine, and this is the baby that they had. And I, c- I can go with that a bit. But I, in terms of completest reasons, and we live in this sort of franchise arc era. Bond films used to acknowledge one genre for one film, but now they, you know, we've got this, these arcs. And I think there's nothing stopping the songs having an arc and repeating and echoing each other. And I do hear a bit of Adele in there, uh, some a bit of a Cornell twang, even... Um, uh, Alicia Keys and Jack White. There's that sort of slightly sassy twang to it. Um, I I think it will do really well for the film. I think it already has done really well for the film. I don't think she's going to get all the Oscars and Grammys and Globes in the way the previous two songs did, partly because of timings. She's going to have to really keep that song in the air till sort of December, whereas the other two previous films came out nearer Oscar time. I mean, not that Oscar also is, is the thing, but after two wins, you know, it's kind of looking thinking she better get it uh, no pressure mm. but I, I do think it's a, a good work and also uh, fundamentally as well I, I personally feel that I hear the artist yes I hear the Bond sound um, but I hear the artist first and I think any good Bond song whether it's you know Live and Let Die Goldfinger Carly Simon you know You Took Kill you hear the performers and the artists that have been chosen first before you hear Bond mm. and I think I think Billie Eilish has um, done that very very well Agreed. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Mark. It's interesting to come back to the point you made about how she grew up with the with the franchise, and that was sort of what we were speculating on a few podcasts back when we knew that she was performing it, but hadn't heard it. And we said, well, mm. "This is going to be a um, will it be inspired by the full fifty something years of the franchise, or will it be very localized because you know that's the world that she lives in?" And you can make a an artistic and you know business case for like this is Daniel Craig's final film. It needs to reflect all of those things. And I guess maybe some of the panelists and some of the Bond fans would be trying to cast 
too much or trying to get too much of a you know personalized perspective on it like a, a franchise song rather than a end of the five film daniel craig story which was regardless of what you think about how successful it was it sort of passed out over time and they are all trying to draw these connections and bring this whole thing to a conclusion so this isn't going to be a standalone film this is going to harken back to spectre and skyfall and so mm. from, from that perspective mm. it's fine that that, that particularly those Two songs are the, the the first two that come to come to mind when you hear it. Perhaps mm. I've heard some podcasts where some of the uh, hosts and panelists were talking about like listening to it thirty times, and they say thirty times. I'm not exaggerating. While they're analyzing, I took the opposite approach. I listened to it three times the first night it was out, and maybe listened to it maybe another three, and then I stopped because I want to see how it fits into the movie. Um, and and I'm not going to get that till the movie's out. So right. I've I've kind of like deliberately kind of pulled back. Again, not that I not that's not a criticism of the song. I want to see how the song works in the movie now, and uh, I don't need to listen to it another 25 times to. And I think know. this is a very good point, Bill, because it will actually change when it's in context of the film. When it's when you pair it against the visuals, it will take on an, a, a, another dimension. And I think that that's that's something that it's very easy to judge based on just a just just a performance. But once it's within that, to be honest with you, if the film ends up being the same kind of, I don't want to say pastiche in a kind of a negative kind of way, but if it has all of those elements that this song has, if you can kind of go, yeah, it's a little bit skyfall, and yeah, maybe it's a little bit. You know, if it's taking all the cherry cherry picking all the best bits from Craig's era. Uh, if the film ends up being like the song, then I won't be disappointed. Also, also um, I mean, I made this comment on on the previous episode when we talked about the song. I said, you know, it it structurally it, it struck me as similar in that to writings on the wall, and that starts out slow, kind of gets some momentum about midway through the song, and then it slows up at the beginning. But that's not a terribly constrictive structure, and. Uh, there are, you know, sonnets can be creative, haikus can be creative, and there are a lot more rules <laughs> with, mm. with those forms of expression than there, uh, than in my comparison to this song to the last couple of uh, Bond songs. So just because it kind of follows a general template doesn't mean it isn't creative. Because, you know, again, Bond fans talk about how John Barry created the James Bond song, uh, sound. And and that's true, but you can still play in that template and still come up with some, you know, creative mm. flourishes mm. on your own. I mean, I would say George Martin did with Live and Let Die, the score, to some degree. I would say Marvin Hamlish uh, with The Spy Who Loved Me. Um, they they were all playing in the in the Bond template that Barry established, but you mm. can still, you know, make your mark. Yeah, Bond has many musical templates. You're very right. I mean, it's it's sometimes it's the trap bird, sometimes it's the rock anthem, sometimes it's the midnight lament. Yes, they all slightly link with each other. But I I've been defending it. I because it suddenly dawned on me when I was talking the other day about the song that everyone, you know, there's been a lot of diehard fans saying let's get back Shirley Bassey, and that's great. I agree with that. I you know I love Shirley Bassey. I I walked up the aisle to one of her tunes, not a Bond <laughs> song, but something else, and. I, I love it, but not one United Artists PR guy or girl in the, uh, 1962 said, do you know what will really uh, sell uh, Goldfinger? 
64 rather. Uh, it, it's a singer from 1914. That's what we need. No, it's got <laughs> to be a. It's got to be a popular singer. I mean, I, I, the the phrase pop is often used as a derogative way, but it, it has to be a popular singer. And I think it's a real. Right. I use this word a lot. Canny casting. It's a clever casting. Um, she, you know, and she's done wonders. Yeah. She's been this musical billboard that's been perched alongside the the streaming digital highways in a way that perhaps we've not seen with Bond, but certainly not in its popularity. And she may have, I think she she didn't quite get number right. one in Billboard chart in America. I think she hit 16, but she's number one in all the digital ones, which are kind of where it matters now. Yeah. No, 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 nobody buys physical media exactly. in the US. Anymore. Well, some of um, us do, the but, other thing yes, I want to throw but in I'm old, so go ahead. <laughs> one of the misconceptions, and I, I'm glad you brought up the Shirley Bassey example, Mark, is three of the worst performing mm. songs in the UK charts, worst performing songs of all time in the Bond canon, were by Shirley Bassey. Yes, in terms of chart success, maybe not in terms of creative Bond heritage success. But no, you're right. There is something interesting there. I, know, uh, I don't think Moonraker actually came out. Is that one that they didn't even bother? Release? Yeah. Right, and Moonraker was a last-minute replacement anyway. I mean, it was... Um, behind the scenes, it was a mess. I mean, that's that's not a comment on the song itself, but I mean, it was a very hectic production. We asked Warren about this on our music podcast, which is like some of the songs do um, grow a different audience over time. And one of the best examples of that is um, we have all the time in the world, Louis Armstrong, because Louis Armstrong, because that originally didn't even chart, I don't think. No, it um, didn't. And then it was in a, it was in a Guinness beer commercial in 1994, mm. and it got to number three. Yeah, right. And now. It, and now it's like it one got of them. to number three. In, sorry to cut in, but it got to yeah. number three as well in '69 in the UK. Oh, it's, that is. oh it's in the UK, which, yeah. Which was curious. It bounced back and did the same. Yeah, but now it's, years later. now it's one of the most popular songs out of the whole canon. You know, uh, I I walked down the aisle to that. So, how did that work for you, Ben? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, sorry, ironic, but nobody died. Ironically, right? we didn't have all the time in the world, but that. <laughs> <laughs> Portuguese honeymoon, the, the driving tour maybe was a mistake. But anyway. um, yeah, unfortunately, uh, nobody died. Yeah, that's <laughs> just to yeah. piggyback on what uh, Mark's comparison in the '60s. It wasn't as if anyone was clamoring for Rudy Valley to be singing a Bond song, and um, you know Shirley Bassey was in her twenties. Uh, Nancy Sinatra was in her twenties. Uh, Tom Jones was twenty-five when he did his song. So I mean. They were they were all fairly young performers, and we, well, I guess everybody's a critic, but they're. <laughs> but I mean, seriously, it's it's like they were all you know young performers at the general start of their careers. I guess uh, I didn't realize Shirley Bassey had started performing when she was a teenager, so she had she was like a ten year veteran by that point, but she was. Well, we, we, we don't actually need to have the uh, I saw Goldfinger in the cinema brigade stamping their feet and saying we really need Bassey. But we need to attract uh, a, a new fan base. We need to, mm-hmm. you know, Bond needs to continue onward. Uh, and, and if it is to continue onward, it does need to attract a younger audience. And I think as, as Mark pointed out, and James as well, you know, this is, this is much more of a digital age as well. It's charting where it matters. Uh, she's charting where it matters, and I think sure. that uh, it's connecting. You know, we're we're all um, a little older, and we we can harken back to this stuff. But as as Mark was saying earlier, you know, her her connection to to Bond is is the Craig era, and for a lot of the audience, that is their Bond. Hmm. 
you know, in, in a way, it kind of makes sense that that's that's what we're doing now. And I I really genuinely have no objection to that. And I I actually think to go back and get Bassi in again would be a, a bit of a mistake in a way. It would be it would be nostalgic, but I don't think it would necessarily be. It would be very Eurovision kind of thing to do. Also, I just want to say, I said it before, I'll just say it again. Not all of us old guys were like clamoring to have Shirley Bassey sing the title song. I realize there are mm. some vocal ones, but uh, that is by... I know you. I know you really wanted Madonna back, Bill. But you know these are the these are the, the breaks that we. Yeah, to, that's to, that, to that's suffer. what you endure. That's right. So there you go. <laughs> uh, we've we've not heard the end credit disco remix either no. yet. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm part joking, but one of the best versions I heard of Adele was in a gay bar, I think, in either Barcelona or San Francisco. It would have been or Berlin, and it was this really upbeat. You know, you listen to it, you go, "I know." Why do I know this tune? It was a real pounding disco version of Skyfall. So I'm really looking forward to hearing. I, some, I love the fact that you, get, you don't know mixed. what city you're in. <laughs> It was more of an underground club thing. I mean, a club that was physically underground, not an underground club. But. Could have been anywhere. Could have been San Francisco or Berlin. Well, I'll say, I'll say this seriously. Of the two versions of Moonraker you get on the soundtrack album, I actually like the disco end title version. Absolutely. The main title. I played that at my wedding. Yeah. I had that at my wedding. It wasn't the first dance, but it might have been like the 20th dance. And everyone's looking at me, what the hell is this? And I went, I don't care. It's Shirley Bassey disco Moonraker. That's... That's why we're playing it. Yeah. So, so is anyone surprised that Hoagie Carmichael wasn't asked to do a Bond theme at some point? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Actually, he was. They they had a Ouija board and they had a séance, <laughs> and but he declined. He said, "Sorry, I, I I don't have time." But he is doing UK entry for Eurovision this year, so it, it swings and roundabouts. <laughs> Apparently, if you look like James Bond, that's the main qualification, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Shall we hustle past that issue? Yes. Yes, I think that's a good idea. Mm-hmm. The, the meat of the subject was that five weeks to go and we got our first video blog. As James Bond fans, we tend to be a little bit, uh, what's the word, conduced to expecting sort of people to come out and talk about the film in very abstract ways, potentially in, in past films whilst they were shooting them. On this film, now that everything's sort of in the can and ready to go and uh, Carrie's kicking around with not very much else to do, he's got time to narrate a video. And actually, I thought it was a pretty entertaining video. Like you said, Paul, the fact, uh, you know, the the video blogs of the last two movies, some of them were kind of stiff and most of them were like done during production or maybe like right after production, you know, photography had ended. This one, of course, they had the uh, opportunity to kind of go through the material and, uh, you know, some of the, some of the images go all the way back to that first promo uh, video they put out. I don't even remember when now. Um, June, June in Jamaica. Yeah, I mean, because you know, some of the shots of Fukunaga directing the cast and crew, uh, you know, were from that video. Um, Quite a stylistic change from that video, though. Oh yeah, I agree. Oh, I agree. It was, it was, it was kind of semi-documentary like. In other words, Fukunaga was like doing a voiceover. He wasn't talking to the camera per se, like a lot of those previous video blogs were. No, I, I found it very entertaining, and it was, like, edited pretty tight. It was only a minute and 40 seconds. And it's also, it came after they had had three new commercial spots in three weeks. They had one for the Super Bowl, one for the Oscars, and one for the NBA All-Star Game, at least here in the United States. So I remember coming to somebody, it's like, are we going to get 
are they going to do like a new commercial every week? Well, they didn't this week, but we got the Fukunaga video instead. Well, I'm waiting for the behind the scenes of behind the scenes because I think the, it was beautifully shot. I mean, I almost feel they've got Roger Deakins to come in and film the behind the scenes stuff here. So <laughs> it's sort of like wheels within wheels now because these are little – they're a little bit travel loggy as well in a, in a cute little uh, vintage Bond way. But, yeah, I thought it was a beautifully cut little bit. Yes, Fukunaga, he's right. Perhaps audio description is not his thing. When it first started, I thought if they put the wrong take on this, what was there no other uh, versions of him enthusing? But I, I liked it. I, I thought it was beautifully just, you know, we're in the almost at the point of saturation, although we can all do with being soaked a little more with some uh, No Time to Die tidbits, I'm sure. Um, but no, fair play to them. Fair, fair play also for just. Maybe shaking up a bit because I personally got very jaded very quickly with the last couple or so films where it's you know it's the the working diary of a Land Rover or it's the you know yeah. it's the guy that's looking after the cables. Right. It was slightly stretching <laughs> it out, and 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 as usual, it's not about actually what those people do, which would be interesting. It's it's a slight fluff promo piece but at least here it's saying right i'm the director this is my movie right uh come and see it and this is why and i think actually i, I quite like that pared down sort of promo thinking yeah i did i did like your point uh, mark about uh, the the take because it did when i first played it i thought is this kerry fukunaga doing audio description for the visually impaired <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the little dots come across the screen and now it's the gun barrel and james bond is walking across the screen <laughs> <laughs> oh dear uh, let's hope the gun barrel is is a little bit better than than the last one. As he painted himself into a corner now with this, is everyone now expecting the gun barrel at the beginning? Yes, it's in the middle. It's in the middle. It's really long. It's like a five minute overture break where everyone can go and get an ice cream. That's not true. Daniel Craig juggles juggles the gun in this one. <laughs> uh, he's, he's juggling three guns, and it's it's a question of which one he's going to use. Health and safety, man. We've gone we've gone from sepia. To a to a kind of a, a more kind of rich beige, I think, uh, as I understand I th- it. I think that what we've all got to brace ourselves for is that uh, gun barrel sequence, which may or may not be at the beginning of the film. He will be wearing a coronavirus mask. <laughs> Um, they, they, they digitally added although coronavirus might ultimately as I'm sure you guys have said might ultimately be a bigger nemesis to this film than uh, we joke but we hopefully not I thought Heineken was the sponsor sorry so um, so I, th- I think I said something along the lines of you know wouldn't it be interesting that a film about a virus is defeated by a virus I don't know I th- it's uh, it, ironies of ironies I suppose well, it's, the, it's like the Connery virus you, you end up just slobbing about in dungarees and can't be bothered to leave the house even though you've done three comebacks already this is a no time to die reference but uh in 2011 there was the movie contagion about a worldwide Uh. pandemic written by scott z burns who is not getting a credit but nope gotta take this call michael g wilson's on the phone Again, stop talking about the coronavirus. (laughs) It's fine. It's nothing to see here. The thing that surprises me about the trailers they've been putting out is there's an awful lot of footage of the uh, raiding the base sequence, which... Yeah, what you'd assume is the third act, right? Which is mostly people would think is the third Mm. act. No, that's not a euphemism, thank God. Right, right, right okay. Right. That, right. You mean literally the right. villain's lair. Yeah. Sorry, I've <laughs> gone back to the Berlin nightclub, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, usually, the last 
that all those sequences and stills and everything from that kind of set piece are held back until the film's actually been out for a while. Um, you know, when we do stuff for the magazine and stuff, we're looking for stills of like, you know, the climactic sequence. They're very thin on the ground because they never really released any. But this has been Bond and Nomi, you know, going after Safin's base has been a good like third of the footage and the stills have been coming out, which is strange. It's because the rest of the film is them sitting around on couches talking about who's going to be 007. <laughs> so they're they're in they're in an industrial dispute tribunal. <laughs> I think maybe also they they've put in so much creative effort. A couple of friends visited that set and they just were gobsmacked by how beautiful and imaginative and creative it was. So maybe they're just like, who cares? Let's just sell it because again, the how it's used is not always. Um, yes. Obviously, it's going to be a villain's lair. We know that, yes. but um, I think there's there's more to that base and where it is in the world that they haven't quite perhaps put out there. And if you have to um, if you have to wait, mm. you know, 120 minutes for the for the scene, and you're sitting in anticipation in the cinema, that's probably not a bad thing. No, and I, I think actually even general audiences, which don't exist, but the wider non-fan people out there, they. They also, oddly, they want to see their... They won't say, oh, that's very Ken Adam, but they'll go, oh, it looks very Bondy. And I think those benchmarks actually do have to be there for general audiences. And I, I think that's, apart from maybe the DB5, uh, you know, an M's office, it makes a certain sense to put a, a villain's lair up on the uh, the screen there. It's quite nice to actually have a layer for, for, a, for a change as well, to actually, as you say, like, harken back to that kind of Ken Adam base whereas i think you know with with spectre you know had the you had the death star the call center uh, the call center yeah the death star call center mm. uh, with it with its uh well, we had the spectre call you know, center inspector but uh yeah the, i guess that's what i was trying yeah. to say it was like it's basically yeah it was it, it just and everyone i uh, just it didn't feel very bassy and it was you know uh, blown up by a single shot and you know just the same death star designer uh was on that so it's it kind of it's nice to kind of see this very properly Bondian environment, and it and it does. I think there's there's lots of there's lots of um, touchstones in there, as Mark was saying. Of um, it's not just Ken Adam, but um, things that we're kind of used to seeing in in Bond's environments and world. And I think that's something that's sort of been lacking for for a while. So welcome return. Mm. Well, it, it was interesting. There was that one still of Rami Malek holding the gun. And some people were saying, oh, this shows he can't be Dr. No because he has hands. Yeah, but like right above his head, there's that Dr. No style grill in the ceiling. Dr. No had hands at one point. So is is the Dr. No grill like something that, you know, you fry up a, a burger Tra- on? Trademark. Like, that's right. Because is it is, is it like the <laughs> a Holyfield walk? No? Yes, yeah, uh, the the George Foreman patent dispute. Oh, so George yeah. Foreman, I'm saying, the yeah. George Foreman grill uh, and the Doctor No, <laughs> the Doctor No grill. I want to have one of those. Ben, go to your room and think on your sin. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help it. By the way, have we mentioned die another day. Oh, I guess I just did, so we don't have to now. But um... the problem with that merchandising plan, Ben, is it's too affordable. <laughs> Yeah, fans don't like it if they can afford it. That's that's right. true, but it will be uh, it will have the double oh seven logo all over it. I'm um, an aspirational bond shopper. Yeah, talking of merchandise can we have a little segue here and i, I hope you haven't done it already. But the Adidas trainers, yes, which, put, which may or may not have been leaked out there. 
I'm a big Adidas fan and I'm a big Bond fan, but I'm not a big Adidas Bond trainer fan. I'm, I found something a little weird. They do look like market ripoffs. Um, Mark, the, the, the sporting equivalent is when a, when, a, when a footballer, as we'd say in the soccer fan, turns up um, with the shorts, the shirt, and the shoes, the boots. They're called full kit wankers. Mm. Um, I think this is the Bond fan equivalent of being a full kit wanker. The Fukunaga wankers, maybe. No. Are you allowed to? Um, are you allowed to wear them with your tuxedo? Though that's my question. No. <laughs> you can actually, because they will look good. And I, I, you know, I think Craig did still rock the Converse and suit look uh, back in April in Jamaica. What do you think, Daniel Craig's reaction to those sneakers is? Uh, please, no one online find out what they're called and name them, no? Um, I think as long as you don't wear socks with them, it'll be okay. <laughs> sort of Italian style. <laughs> I have a, a slight issue, I think, with this push for uh, for kind of marketing with this particular film. I just I just feel like it's been perhaps a little more heavy-handed this time around than even, say, Die Another Day. Just to, I know that you mentioned it earlier, Bill. I just thought I'd get it in there. Yeah. Um, feels very much like we're we're back in that kind of realm of fifty or sixty products. And um, you know, you know what it feels like, Ben. It feels like this was somebody's last chance to make all the money they possibly could off licensing. Mm, what a surprise! Just leave that hanging mm. out there. But I really, I really liked Fukunaga's <laughs> little uh, little movie. I thought it was good. That's what I. That's, that's my review of the whole. Film. Well, I was about to say I liked it too, and I like it a lot better than any of the video blogs we saw for the last two movies. So, and perhaps part of it is because okay, the movie shot, so we can like play around with the footage and you know edit it to you know what we want instead of kind of whatever the deal is before. Of course, the game will be were all those shots in the final film because the last couple of movies have had um, stuff used in the trailers and the behind the scenes stuff, which didn't actually make the final cut. By the way, Mark made a joke about, uh, you know, the behind the scenes of the behind the scenes and having Roger Deakins shoot the behind the scenes of the behind the scenes. This is actual true fact. So like Jeffrey Unsworth was like one of the greatest cinematographers of the British film industry. He worked, he worked Mm. on Dr. No shooting the Miss Taro screen tests. Didn't work on the movie itself, but he did those screen tests. I saw the call sheet. It's like, Jeffrey Unsworth? Like, you know, I mean, look him up. He he photographed the... Superman. Yeah. Superman the movie. I think that was yeah. his last one, or, or maybe... Yeah, I think he wasn't, wasn't too well on that last one, but they, they Donna and all the cast are, are serious Unsworth fans and they bow at the altar of what he did on that film and in his whole career i think it's also how he held himself on set as well and also 2001 of space odyssey and so mm. it's like so so he has a james bond connection but just but just shooting the screen test for miss darrow there were like four candidates to play miss darrow and he shot the screen test sorry that has nothing to do with what we're talking about but but mark's comment reminded me of that and i it's no it is kind of interesting because clearly there is you know the unit behind the unit. I would imagine that that, that that's a quite that's quite a serious uh, aspect to you know because they know that's going to be a marketing aspect. You know, it's going to how they how they're going to you know mm. um, market the film. Speaking of behind the scenes, behind the scenes, obviously the, the books that we're going to get the first 
behind the scenes book since uh wasn't enough right where it's actually got words in it mm. not just photos mm. i'd love to see the version before it got redlined the redact the non-redacted <laughs> version. the non-redacted version the first draft on this film yeah the first draft well i still i'd love to i still see think it. the hibbin uh license to kill one is the one to beat because it actually has some depth and detail to it that one there's yes. and the cool sheets and you get a sense of the logistics of the production and one thing i will say actually in defense of well, I don't need to defend it, but in sort of the current Bond production mechanisms, it you look at it, it must be so difficult actually to shoot a Bond film. Yes, you've got a massive amount of budget, money, crew, and a certain sense of luxury and a fallback in knowing you've got that. But also every day is you're not there to make your film. You're there to sell the film you haven't made yet. So every time you're shooting a scene, I can right. understand that you know certain actors, their patience must get really tested and you can see it's like, hold on. Yes, we're, we're, we're not only watching a camera shoot a scene in, on the lot at uh, Cuba and Pinewood. It's that there's a whole bunch of pe- marketing people doing their thing as well. So it's like I imagine the patience that a Bond film has to have or any big franchise film is ridiculous. So I, I'm kind of glad that we haven't had all these behind the scenes of you know Land Rovers and the detailing of Venice Lasagnas, which it felt like um, we had in previous films. So I, I just... <laughs> I zoned out and I, I couldn't remember. I was like, I'm not learning anything here. But in an odd way, I felt I had learned something a little from Fukunaga's little uh, travelogue, travelogue behind the scenes, a log. I think the thing that I took away from it the most was we're in a safe pair of hands yes. here who is going to respect the legacy and not pull a Tamahori on us. It does feel assured, doesn't it? It does feel very assured. I haven't seen the CGI wave yet, but, you know, they're probably not going to use that in the... I haven't seen the footage myself. It doesn't feel like the second unit have taken over and it's become a sort of trade show convention that perhaps there was big swathes of the last couple of Brosnans that felt like second unit were taking over. And I know they kind of were. uh, And certain directors of that era have professed as much yeah i i do i'm with you on the fukunaga thing I, even just actually the way he yes he was very quiet when he was doing his little uh, voiceover but it just shows a guy that's actually in charge of what he's thinking and saying I, I didn't feel he was out of his depth i don't think he's you know he's he does come across as quite an intellectual and a he's got if you ever hear him interviewed about cinema he's got a mammoth knowledge of cinema and the application of it and i i fingers crossed um he'll pull it out of the hats when it matters well and and at the very beginning of that uh, video he talked about the gun barrel and kind of and he sounded like somebody who like appreciated the gun barrel and how it played the uh, the role it played in the quote classic unquote bond films and whereupon with sam mendes i can't remember a specific quote but i kind of got the impression after a while he was getting annoyed at being asked about the gun barrel and that's probably me reading stuff into it but in that video fukunaga seems to embrace the gun barrel and how it was used historically and that suggests it's going to be at the beginning but we'll see i well i think you're you're right bill it's 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 nice that he understands perhaps more of the the law if you like, of uh, of Bond, it seems to be that he's he's putting the right elements in there. Um, but what kind of jumped out at me watching that? You know, only it's only a minute and a half or so of, of the footage. Is that even though everything seems very disparate, you've got a lot of different locations and a lot of different styles going on. It does feel very cohesive. It's unusual to have so many of these disparate elements seemingly come together so smoothly. And I really feel like he, he has a handle on 
what he's doing. Obviously, this is a very pared down thing, and, and so it's not necessarily reflective of what the whole film will be like, but it, it just felt assured and, and very well put together. And I feel like he's going to have a control over, uh, you, you know, where you're saying like, oh, second unit sometimes takes over more. It just feels like he's got a handle on it. And I think you will pull it together very beautifully. I think there was some concern that we're see- some people were saying we're seeing too much of this film. And by the time we go see the film, we'll have seen everything. Well, newsflash, yeah. no, <laughs> because the film's going to be a hundred, the film's going to be 163 minutes. Mm. <laughs> We've seen about two. There's also locations they haven't shown yet as well. And nor should yes, they. I, yes. I, right. got, I got wind of at least one uh, location that's not a million miles from uh, London, which is interesting, and I know what they've done there. And I'm like, okay, well, that's not. I've not seen a still of that. I've not seen a pap shot of that. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad. So I'm thinking, yeah, they've, they've, they've managed to keep some things at bay. For ex- example, when Craig and the whole Whitehall Sunday that happened back in June, and he was shooting at Buckingham Palace or outside on the Mall, they were also shooting elsewhere, knowing that the press would be hovering over Daniel Craig. So they were able to have a little, he was the, he was the best decoy in town at that time. So they were able to shoot elsewhere and do other things. So yeah, I, I don't think we've seen too much of it at all. Also, I was asked after the, uh, the Toronto uh, show for a fan video about, uh, does, does this make me more excited to see the film? And I said, yes. And I thought about it later and I realized, I, I wish I had thought of this while I was being interviewed. It's like part of it was just, you know, one seeing that show in Toronto it was a reminder of the Bond theater experience. Mm. I mean, the last time I saw a Bond movie in the theater was actually after Roger Moore died. They had that double feature of two of his films. And there's been, and that was in 2017. There's been nothing since, you know, so, so having that Toronto show kind of reminded me about what it's like. It evoked what a new Bond movie's like, even though that one came out in 2012. And then also this new video, you know, you know, again, it's, it's different than the um, you know the three commercial spots we've had recently, and it's different enough. It's like you know I'm 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 more intrigued than I was. So, in that sense, it worked for me at least. Mark, I meant to ask you this question. I was thinking about it this mm. morning seeing the film in the theater for the first time. Experience mm. for me as a kid of the '80s, it was Goldeneye because I wasn't old enough to see License to Kill at the time that came out. Casino, we saw. Yeah, we've done press screenings as well, so that doesn't. They don't really count either mm. because um, you've seen it before the premiere. So I can only think of like three that I actually saw at the premiere first, or you know, you went to the cinema and saw it in the cinema first with an mm. audience. So it's it's pretty rare air to go into the Bond films for the first time at the premiere. You mean or yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I've been fortunate enough to. It's not been my first. Uh, ride on the rodeo, whatever the phrase might be, at the premiere. Also, premieres, I hate to say, and I don't, don't want to jinx myself for times and events to come, but premieres are not always the best place to watch a movie because you are just highly aware of, you know, like I remember with uh, Spectre and Skyfall going, oh, Prince William sits still for ages. You end up watching Prince Harry pick his nose and sort of, and, <laughs> and right. you, you, you're, you're there in the hoopla and you're, you're thinking about it and the red carpet and all of that. And you, you don't take the film in. Also, you know, some of the venues that house the big premieres are not natural cinemas. So you have to slightly... You're usually seeing it with a pole on the way, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sort of limited seats and options and all that. And I, I love the Albert Hall. And I think it's actually become a really last... Well, since, uh, well, Die Another Day to a degree, but also since uh, Skyfall onwards, it's become the little sort of cinema launch home of Bond. And I, I like it for that, but it is also like watching a film on a cliff. It's sort of like you know, the white cliffs of uh, 
of Kensington. Are you conscious as well that the um, the filmmakers are in the audience? Like, you know, oh. your reactions and the and the reaction to what's going on on screen is going to be tempered by the fact that people who made the film are sitting in front well, of Well, they are, but they're also on the way to Majestic Wine to stock up for the after-show party. So they're, they're not always there, obviously. Um, but yeah, I, I do think, <laughs> and in fact, even let's take it back to this week in the Fukunaga um, travelogue, I do think that it reminded me personally how cinematic, what a cinematic beast the Bond movies have been since 1962 and I think that's an important part now of because we live in this streaming era where we watch so much at home and that's great and I do think that that's a sign of uh, sort of motion picture evolution sorry um, Mr Spielberg I'm with uh, Scorsese here a bit on that uh, in terms of anti-marvel uh, I, I do think there is a future in streaming but it, it's a glorious thing to see that a Bond film is about to come out and it's going to be a pure piece of mainstream caper cinema and, you know, they've they've gone to town with these cinematographers in a way that they perhaps didn't always do. You know, um, I love Alec Mills. I love Alan Hume. I love that era. And I love the, the different simplicity of the visuals. But, I, I you know, we're, we're, it's an embarrassment of riches now when you've got Hoyt of uh, him and Roger Deakins and Linus Sandra. And, you've, you know, it reminds me, I think they've made a real point of telling the audiences of today that Bond is a beast of cinema. So, you know, I, th- I think that's going to be a... a Great reminder come April. Last uh, thing on the on the on the video blog is that a little bit of Hans Zimmer in the background. I don't think nobody knows for sure. I would just say this: if it was, he would have tweeted it. <laughs> yeah. Do are we are we going to get a Hans Zimmer? This is my working day video. I feel we might because he's that kind of guy, and it, it'll. I, I can't put on YouTube without having him his little lecture thing. I have to sort of skip the ad because he's always there talking Mastercard Mastercard that's Pierce Brosnan you use a Mastercard to pay for the Masterclass Masterchef no he probably did the theme for Masterchef yeah, and for everything else in life, there's my team of sixty-three composers, and we know, and we know one of his sixty-three is working on the film because he tweeted it. So, and we don't say sixty-three as a random joke number. You counted them up <laughs> on the web page. All right, okay, <laughs> I did. Yes. <laughs> I could be wrong, but I do think Zimmer's going to come up with quite a, a good, solid little score. And it, it won't be little, of course, it won't be little. I, you know, if I'm someone like Zimmer, I've been given a gig. You know, Hans Zimmer, one of the reasons he probably fell in love with cinema was the music of Bond and the idea that he's able to do it. I don't think he's just going to churn out Mission Impossible 19. I think that he will give some grace and dignity to it. And I'm kind of excited he's doing it, but there there is such this Hans Zimmer industry now that's just quite amusing to the point of slight well, comedy. I mean, the rhythm section was Hans Zimmer Incorporated, even though it was one of his. In fact, it's the guy who's working with him on on. It's yes, yeah, same guys. Well, it's nice to have have him do it. I mean, it's good the good that he's. Uh... In the frame. Well, he's having quite the year. Wonder Woman. Is he doing uh, Top Gun 2? I think he might be. Although I've heard George Emeroda's doing something I'm, like that as well. I can't wait. I can't wait for his take on SpongeBob. SpongeBob. You got, you got to the gag. <laughs> I know. He's like got all the icons. Can you imagine his sort of Christmas card this year? It's going to be off the chart. Nobody, nobody going to laugh at my Zimmer frame joke? Oh. No. I'm on the floor laughing, Ben. <laughs> oh. But you're politely using the mute button, right? I'm still waiting. <laughs> That's right. I'm still waiting for someone to get my going for Goldfinger gag that, that I don't think anyone's picked up on yet. So. <laughs> Apart from you four, thank you very much. Thank you. 
it's a release date. Yeah. There's posters anyway. circulating that say the second, and posters circulating that say the third. When would you like to see this film, guys? The thirty-first. Uh, <laughs> they can't yeah. change that date. They announced it. Surely, when, I mean, they won't bump that. They only bumped the release date. How many times? Well, well apparently the the ones that say April third are intended for countries where it yeah. is going to start the third. Whereupon in the UK it's going to be the second. That's my understanding. The, the confusion was that a lot of the IMAX dates for the UK said the third, which was weird because it's the second in the UK. And then some of the other cinemas in the UK said the third when it should be the second. And then the posters came out with the third, and it which just confused everybody. And then the IMAX thing in the States is interesting because on their earnings call, they said, oh, we're going to get the film a couple of days before regular cinemas to maximize earnings in the, in the US. But all of the IMAX US listings are the tenth. So... Who knows? To be fair, it's such a long film that it does actually straddle two days. That's right. You so start on the eighth. Whenever you go, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. So, so if so if Skyfall has an intermission for the orchestra showing, so can you imagine what No Time to Die is going to be like? It'll have two intermissions when it eventually gets to uh, orchestra showings. There'll be two orchestras. Yeah. It'll be two orchestras, Bill. That's They'll just right. tag out. <laughs> so is anybody surprised that it's one hour and two hours no. and 23 minutes or for two hours and 43 minutes no. sorry i was doing the math right no i mean i i think we're all gonna love the first season of no time to die ultimately so that was actually a gag that uh chris rock did about the irishman at the oscars right. no I, I i think actually audiences have changed a little bit you know the younger generations have forever been told they can't sit still and watch anything but they're watching like you know three hour end games and you know all these big lord of the rings and hobbits and dunes well also i mean i mean way back in the day you had the 10 commandments at three hours and 39 minutes which apparently included intermission and you had long movies are not a new thing it's just been kind of like buried for a while back in the day you also had a film that was barely longer than a television episode today so (laughs) yeah like 85 minute movies yeah Mm. And also, we tip, we're such fans and we're such Bond fans, or maybe not us guys here, but it's too long. I'm like, you've been complaining for five years, there's been no Bond film. And when one comes out that may be actually sort of four and a half films in length, what's the problem? It's just, like, you know, it's, it's just can't keep people happy. I, I think I, I trust Fukunaga. I trust a lot of them. I think there will be reasons why it's a little longer. It may even, I think it might have some structural tricks to it as well. I'm not saying it's going to be... We'll have the uh, the demolition of the villain's lair in the first five minutes, but I think there might be you know stopping and starting, and we we will possibly have an a epilogue that is longer than we than usual for a Bond, longer than Spectres previously on James Bond. Uh, yeah, I, I think um, I'm I'm not as long as I don't really care how long a film is generally, as long as like it's mm. not it's not padded out or it's got to you hold know, your attention. That's all you need. Yeah, it's look it's. If you need to tell the story in that amount of time, and that's that's the time it's going to take to tell that story effectively, then absolutely. And I think that cutting stuff out, it's like I was I was listening to a podcast yesterday about uh, the snowman that got 20 minutes of its time cut and therefore – or they didn't actually film 20% of the of – the, of the script or whatever for uh, for time constraints or something like that. Not and not even the flying scenes, or is this a different version of Snowman? You're talking the Joe Nesbo. Uh, the Joe Nesbo. Right. So yeah. the ultimately, what they ended up doing is creating a film that makes absolutely no sense at all. So it's better to have a film that you know at least at least 
tells tells the story rather than trying to fit for for a particular constraint i was going to say i'm looking forward to the the other podcasts that are around there that do loving reviews of the bond films that are three times longer than the film we might hit some technical limits a nine hour review of no time to die like in three parts um part one three hours part two another three hours well what, what i love is we're getting the abc cut Theatrically, that's not a bad thing, and that's one for the um, yeah, the Secret Service uh, 70s fans there. Kerry Fukunaga's gonna do the VO, <laughs> for it. yeah, it's just gonna feel like are we, t- are we talking about the uh, Honor Majesty Secret Service yeah. ABC cut? Yes, yeah. yes, <laughs> I, would, I would just hope that, um, that because they realize that they have done as Mark was saying earlier, the current films aren't episodic, it has a larger arc. I hope that what they're doing is respecting that arc and tying up, effectively tying up these these loose ends, so to speak, mm. giving it, give, tying it up properly rather than kind of shoehorning a you know a catch-all villain into the situation. They're actually Pull, or, or pulling a license to kill where the entire film's undone in the last two minutes. They made the decision to uh, retcon uh, Spectre to be, you know, in other words, Skyfall was originally supposed to be a standalone. Sam Mendes mm. said it was a sky, uh, standalone in 2011. And then they, then when they made Spectre, they made the conscious decision to retcon it, make it all part of this one arc. So it's like, okay, they've made the decision. Let's see how well they execute it. It was kind of like there were, there were bits of Spectre where, where, where it wasn't so great, but okay. They're, you know, I sort of give them a pass on it because killing him is hard to bounce back from. Mm. I mean, like, you know, you had to address it in Spectre, right? I understand that, but the idea that uh, Silva was always part of Spectre. And he was head of the IT department. Right, exactly. And then, if, you actually, if you actually read the draft script, it's, that's what he is. He's head of IT. CTO. That's, that's right. That's, yeah, because Q says it, right. essentially, mm. um, when, I don't, when I, he's I, deciphered that laptop. It's never sat well with me, uh, that whole retconning. I, I think it diminishes the good elements of uh, Skyfall. And I'm, I'm not Skyfall's biggest fan, but I, I do. one of the things I do like about it is that essentially it is a kind of a standalone. And then it kind of now isn't. Um, so I think it's... I was thinking this the other day about our earlier episodes, and I remember throwing a joke in. If they're going to fully explore, you know, the Bond-Madeline relationship, the one thing this came about about a discussion about like that little snippet on the train where she says, you know, somebody broke into the house and I had a gun under the sink. And that's now been extrapolated into Safin, you know, turning up at the house in no time to die. And I was joking like, well, where's Madeline's mom in all of this? Because surely Bond would want to go meet his mother-in-law. Hold on to your seats, kids. Yay. Family. <laughs> well, well, anyway, more generally, I just want to say, so, some movies are long and are worth every minute. Lawrence of Arabia falls in that category. I said it before. I, you know, was like I saw it in a theater for the first time last year. The Great Escape is another one. Yeah, and then some movies are kind of short and seem long. And because I remember mm. going the to rhythm see Quant- section, <laughs> well, or, or Quantum of Solace when I was like checking my watch. This is only 106 minutes, right? What it, what time is it? And the rhythm section, yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it just depends. It depends on the skill of the filmmaker. So if this is like a really well done movie, I'm all for it. They'll also have chapter headings as well. I, I think it's, no, I'm, I'm teasing, being silly again. Chapter seven, it could be like a Wes Anderson film. It just won't end. 
Well, or or Billy Wilder, the fortune cookie had chapter titles. Yeah. Well, Bond does it though. I mean, it's done it with his travelogue. You know, where we yeah. are, Siena. That, that, that's the same thing. The lower thirds when we change locations. But 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 the fortune cookie actually they had numbers one, t- you know, title, two title. I mean, they're like chapter titles. Well, they did that with 2001 as well. The danger with it is you end up just, as a viewer, just waiting to get to the next chapter. You're not actually just watching the film as a whole. I, I, I hate films actually break up and do that because very few of them do it right. Yeah. Casino Royale's essentially two chapters. You know, it's two films in a sense. Mm. You get kind of a two for one with uh, with Casino Royale. I, I feel like you, you almost get a... A conclusion at the, um, the the sky bus or whatever it's called Miami, uh, yeah, Miami airport sequence is kind of a conclusion to the to the first film, if you like. I mentally divide that into three because the Italy stuff at the end sort of feels separate from the Montenegro stuff, though. So I don't know. Yeah, no, it's. I mean, agreed. Although it's, you could almost you could almost stand alone the first. If if you just saw Bond turn up at you know this uh, whatever name is Severin place you know um you know and then and then m gives gives him the uh the mission to go to montenegro it it feels like that's a sort of a essentially the start of a new movie and what is how long is this casino royale it's it's got to be a couple good couple of hours right i, I don't have the um two hours 20 ish um, yeah so it's i don't a, have the exact so it's a fairly that's a fairly chunky bit of time for for a movie the the craig era with the exception of quantum has trended long i mean casino was over two hours 20 guyfall was specter was almost two and a half and this may be you know this one may be close to two hours 45 mm. you know, well, quantum is the you know is the outlier in that regard in, in a lot of regards yeah, yeah. <laughs> well i was just keeping it to the one but you know it's <laughs> Fair, fair comment. <laughs> to me, it's very interesting that you do have an arc that runs through these films, and therefore it's kind of interesting to see how they will tie this up, whether they're going to leave a door open or they're going to properly kind of bookend it and say this, you know, Casino Royale was becoming Bond and um, No Time to Die is going to be uh, kind of the, the door closed on that chapter and, and how they're going to how they're going to deal with it, whether, they, whether they're firmly closing that door or kind of leaving it open. It's, uh, it's an interesting... I mean, people have forgotten about this. At one point, John Logan had sold them on like two back-to-back movies. Mm-hmm. And then Daniel Craig said, no, I don't think so. And so then they you know, retreated from that. But at one point, that was going to be the plan. You'd, you'd have Bond 24 and 25 as back-to-back movies. We won't really know, but you'll be curious to see if any echoes of that are somehow present in this uh in this film well i mean if it's if it's a three-hour movie in a sense you almost are getting two films <laughs> yeah it's interesting when they do that and they did that with the the harry potter film didn't they they ended up kind of going uh do you know what we're gonna make this a two-parter and you know i don't obviously i don't see that happening this but um it is interesting sometimes where they they come up with a, a kind of a longer arc or a longer story a longer narrative um and then they have to dial it back so i wonder whether that's whether in this this film we're actually getting some kind of revised version of that second film i'm not close enough to be sure but obviously you know you sit and read a script you must get a sense of how roughly how long things are going to take except when the maybarn writes just a boat chase here please (laughs) well well the rule of thumb is for each one page of script you get one minute of screen time there are some exceptions uh there was a movie called in the 40s her Girl Friday, 
which was a remake of the front page. And there was like all this dialogue. And so that rule of thumb fell out. <laughs> that that went away because there was so much dialogue. It's Girl Friday. And yeah. And yeah, the, the, and the dialogue is, is very snappy and it, it's very kind of, it's, it's the archetypal kind of 40s dialogue heavy uh, romantic comedy. It's one of my favorite films. Yeah, and, and you notice that some of that, not that this really has any relevance or anything, but so they, they, when they brushed up the original Star Wars script, the New Hope script, they looked back to His Girl Friday and tried to incorporate some of that snappy banter between Han and Leia, just to kind of, and, you, and you, if you compare the two films, you can kind of see a, kind of a dna in there well actually there's a curiosity there is a point there ben because i think i was lee brackett i don't know if it was her girl for his girlfriend that she worked on but she was of that era and of that uh sort of writerly mindset and she that's what lucas brought her in for uh for empire strikes back was just to slightly improve you know princess leia's voice and the similar thing has been done with phoebe waller bridge allegedly coming in to you know to pep up the women to put a better strength to their characters and their stance within the scenes. So yeah, you could make some connections there. Hmm. I mean, it, it would be, it would be nice to sort of see a little, a little bit more kind of, sort of snappy back and forth, basically coming to what Bill was saying about one minute of uh, action being one page. I mean, there, that is the kind of the rule of thumb, but um, doesn't always necessarily hold, hold true. And, and especially when you've got directors like Mendez, who, who tend to kind of do things a little bit on the fly rather than someone like Campbell, who is very much a, uh, and I say this in the, with the greatest respect, more of a workman-like director. I, I, I particularly like Campbell's direct, directorial style because it is, uh, when I say workman-like, I mean, I just, it does. It, functional. It, it works. It's very functional and he does what he's supposed to do and, and he delivers a really solid piece. Whereas I think with someone like Mendez, who's willing to more experiment more and try more things. It's why when you see the, you know, the, the trailers for that with all of this footage that never made it in, but ultimately what that ends up doing is costing more money. It feels a bit sort of, it's less wasteful. economical. It's wasteful. Yeah. It's not a very economical way to shoot. I think what, what we'd have had with this film, I would imagine is a, a lot of revisions to get, get to the point where you essentially, when they were first floating two stories to kind of revise it down into a, a workable single narrative. But it would have been, it would have been a lot of work on that script, I would think. I think we can probably call it here. And uh, with the exception of a little bit of follow-up from James from last week's episode, uh, thank you for joining us. Yeah, we, um, last week's episode, we talked about um, all the times James Bond pretended to die or the villains assumed he would die. And um, we were kind of spitballing it for an hour, and we thought we got a lot of them, but we left it open to the audience. You fellow listeners, thank you very much for writing in on Twitter. Here's the ones we missed. Uh, for your eyes only, Chris Tardos says, let the sharks, leave it to the sharks, they'll get them. So he assumes they're dead. Goldeneye, they're left for dead in a Eurocopter. We missed that one. Tomorrow Never Dies is a bit of a gray area because Carver's group just assumes Kaufman, uh, Dr. Kaufman's going to be successful, so they record, pre-record the uh, news report. At the end of A View to Kill, Money, Penny, and M inexplicitly just think Bond's dead, you know, because they haven't heard from him, because, you know, if he doesn't check in, then he must be dead. And then both in Die Another Day and Casino Royale, technically his heart stops. They were the ones that everybody came up with. So thank you very much for writing in, and um, you can use the hashtag AskBond. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, everyone. This has been a lot of fun and I hope, hopefully enlightening and if not educational. <laughs> well, 
thanks for having me back, guys. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, likewise. Good to come back to the uh, table. And uh, thanks for letting me hang around. <laughs> <laughs> the ghost of Christmas pass. Yeah. I found I, I found your disco version of Skyfall, Mark, whilst we've been talking. So <gasps> you're, you're lying. You're lying. No, oh, no. God. I found it. I've got to drink a lot of wine and gin now, otherwise it won't sound the same. But um, yeah, it does exist. Well, lots of them exist because... Because gay DJs know how to remix a song. And I'm serious, there will be a great Billie Eilish version. If there isn't already one, go for it.